0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. Because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Matthew Thomas's debut novel, We Are Not Ourselves, has been called a masterwork by author Joshua Ferris. Simon & Schuster's Jonathan Karp said, every publisher dreams of being able to herald a major American novel. For us, this is the one. Lighthouse welcomed Matthew Thomas for a day of teaching and sharing the story of his book. Listen as he reads from We Are Not Ourselves and answers questions about how it all came together.
1: I'm Andrea Dupree, and I'm the program director here. And I don't know if you all have heard about the Lighthouse Book Project. Have you? What is it? Uh, interesting. Yeah. So these are, these are people who, who take the workshops, but they're also part of a program here engaged in writing a book in two years, writing and revising a book in two years. Um, so what we've been doing is keeping an eye out, kind of like scouts, you know how scouts are out there all the time looking for talent in baseball and football and even softball, um, yeah yeah um we're out there looking for the people who have done the impossible in writing, which I feel like you know my my sights might be different than yours, but finishing a book is is the impossible for me, and um not only finishing a book but Publishing it and, and then writing kind of a really kick ass book, which is what Matt has done over 10 years. And um, while holding a full time job and raising what, by all accounts, are adorable twin children, um, he has managed to write this book. I think it, it logs at six, five, 500 something, 600 pages. 620, 620 pages. Um, so we're impressed with that and we wanted to celebrate that. And the book project specifically is bringing, bringing people in here to, to share secrets and tricks. Uh, and, and hopefully he will do that. We have just learned that he is long listed for the Guardian Prize for the book, first novel. <clears throat> And he just made the short list for the Center for Fiction's... um, What's the name of the prize? That prize. That prize. (laughs) He uh, debuted last week at number six on the New York Times bestseller list. (laughs) At our heart, we're capitalists, and that got the biggest... (laughs) that got the biggest applause um please join me in welcoming to the stage Matt Thomas
2: thank you so much for coming out <clears throat> this has been easily my favorite stop so far on the little tour I'm on uh can you, the <laughs> you sure can yeah everything here is on the record uh The community here is really extraordinary. I had been told about it for a long time by Amanda Ray, a friend of mine who went to Irvine with me, and nothing has disappointed at all. In fact, I am overwhelmed by the level of discourse in the class we had earlier and the extraordinary sensitivity to reading. So uh, thank you for inspiring me with that class. It was awesome. Um, Thank you for being a cultural center here as well, doing everything you do for Denver. I'm going to read two short sections because really the point is to get to the conversation. Nobody wants to hear anybody drone on for very long, so I'm going to read a couple of short things, and then we can talk, and I will answer any questions anybody has. This book uh, follows a woman named Eileen. Born Tumulty. she becomes Eileen Leary. Uh, She's the daughter of Irish immigrants, and she's born in 1941. She lives in an apartment building, and uh, has a relatively tumultuous youth that would be suggested in her name. She decides early on that she wants more than what she has, and she goes about pursuing that, and the book tells the story of that pursuit somewhat, the obstacles she runs into and overcomes, and then about halfway through the book, uh, something that hits her and her family and her husband that they can't overcome, and they try to anyway. And uh, the book tells the story of uh, their relationship how they handle things. This is early in the book. Eileen's father is something of a local fixer. He's an Irish immigrant who people go to for jobs, connections, advice, to be a father confessor. He's a much-respected man. He's a Schaefer beer truck driver. And uh, Eileen wants somebody eventually, when she's an older girl, who uh, wants more than that. But right now she just sees the potency of her father in this context. And this is a moment of revelation for her, what I'm about to read. One day, her father took her to Jackson Heights, stopping at a huge cooperative apartment complex that spanned the width of a block and most of its length. They descended into the basement apartment of the Super, one of her father's friends. From the kitchen, she looked up at the ground level through a set of steel bars. There was grass out there, blindingly green grass. She asked to go outside. Only as long as you don't step foot on that grass, her father's friend said. Not even the people who live here are allowed on it. They pay me good money to make sure it stays useless. He and her father shared a laugh she didn't understand. A frame of connected buildings enclosed a massive lawn girdled by a short, wrought iron railing. Nothing would have been easier than clearing that little fence. Around the lawn and through its middle ran a handsome brick path. She walked the roots of the two smaller rectangles and the outer, larger one, wending her way through all the permutations, listening to the chirping of the birds in the trees and the rustling of the leaves in the wind. "'Gas lamps stood like guardians of the prosperity they would light when evening came. "'She felt an amazing peace. "'There were no cars rushing around, no no people pushing shopping carts home. "'One old lady waved to her before disappearing inside. "'Eileen would have been content to live out there, looking up into the curtain-fringed windows. "'She didn't need to set foot on that grass. "'Maybe someone would bring her upstairs and she could look down on the whole lawn at once.' The lights were on in the dining room of one apartment on the second floor and she stopped to stare into it. A grandfather clock and a beautiful wall unit gazed down benignly at a bowl on the table. She couldn't see what was in the bowl, but she knew it was her favorite fruit. The people who lived in this building had figured out something important about life and she'd stumbled upon their secret. There were places she now saw that contained more happiness than ordinary places did. Unless you knew that such places existed, you might be content to stay where you were she imagined more places like this hidden behind walls or stands of trees places where people kept their secrets to themselves I had half a mind to read this section where Eileen's father teaches her how to drink effectively and I thought why not avoid the perception of a stereotype so I will move along Uh, He takes her in a very scholarly way through what there was to drink and what there was to avoid. Uh, Okay. She meets Ed, who is different from the men around her. Uh, He's a research scientist. He's a brilliant guy. He's motivated by different things than uh, driving a Schaefer beer truck. And uh, he also frustrates her by not sharing her Level of ambition in the specific way she is ambitious, she wants more, and she wants a a, a life that 's kind of empirical and definable and successful in a certain way and Ed is uh resistant to uh, her her attitude, I think because he he 's a little bit more of an idealist, he also is sort of pig headed in his own way in the way that he resists opportunities so there 's a complexity in the way they relate to each other. Um, this is later on after they 're married. Eileen had been exposed to the windows in the city at Christmas time, on display in stores by her mother, who took her there in the middle of a difficult alcoholic youth—not uh, uh, Eileen's alcoholic youth, but her mother's alcoholic <laughs> parenting—and uh, despite the uh, the you know the chaos at home, her mother found a way to take her to the windows, and it stuck with Eileen. In December of 1970, she headed to the city with Ed to see the window displays on Fifth Avenue. She was excited to see them, despite how corrosively ironic Ed had been about them the year before, when at one point in Jeremiah, he'd called them, quote, altars to consumer excess. She wasn't about to let his grousing spoil her enjoyment of a tradition she'd observed whenever she could since she'd gone first with her mother as an 11 year old. Ed refused to pay for a parking garage. It took them half an hour to find a spot, and they ended up on 25th and 7th, almost a mile from Lord and Taylor. He refused to let them take a cab, even though she was wearing high uh, high heels and it was 20 degrees out with a wind that whipped up the avenue. The sun was setting and store gates were being pulled down as if in protest of the cold. The sidewalks of 7th Avenue were unusually empty. She noticed that most of the cabs that passed were occupied. As they neared the store, the sidewalks grew more crowded, the bells of the Salvation Army collectors jingling on each corner. They saw a pack gathered in front, which quickened her step and made Ed sigh and slow down. She had been delighting in the scene of a golden retriever, pulling at the corner of a wrapped gift, when Ed, who had been munching his way toward the bottom of a little bag of roasted nuts, broke the spell. "'These things seem here for the purpose of entertainment,' he said, "'but really they're here to get you to come in and part with your money.' He spoke in a breezy, careless way that suggested he believed a new understanding had sprung up between them. They're like organisms that have evolved elaborate decorative mechanisms to lure you in. People fall for it. It's fascinating, actually. Listen to yourself. The bee orchid, for instance, has flowers that look like female wasps. Males try to mate with it, and in the process, they get pollen on their feet and spread it around. It's not about the window. It's about pulling you into the store. It's about getting you to leave with something. She was attempting to concentrate on on the little animatronic girl whose hand was traveling slowly to cover her mouth, which had fallen open at the sight of Santa Claus's ebony boots disappearing up the chimney. It's a stupefying, hypnotic loop. It puts you in a suggestible state. Do you have to be so heady about everything? Do you have to analyze everything to death? What's amazing is that they're exactly the same every year. That's an ignorant remark, she spat. They're not the same at all. They put a lot of work into these, months of planning she wouldn't have minded his objections so much if he hadn't insisted on drawing her into a dialogue about them was it too much to ask to share a moment of joy she looked around at other husbands they didn't look any happier to be there but they stood back dully (laughs) hands folded behind them or scratching their noses they couldn't have been as cleverly cruel about it as ed if they'd tried "'And the battling of tourists,' he said, "'every year it gets worse, "'the jostling, the jockeying for position. "'They're descending on the imperial city "'for their bread and circuses. "'I wish we didn't have to do this.' "'She started walking to the train. "'A couple passing in the other direction "'gave her curious looks "'as though they could see the intensity "'of her disgust in her expression. "'She found herself unaccountably smiling at one man, "'giving him a manic sort of grin "'full of this slightly breathless ecstasy "'of being unmoored. "'And he returned it with a delighted blush.' By the time she felt a tug on her elbow, she was at the next corner. Don't be hysterical, Ed said. I was just making a few observations. The world isn't a lab. Come on, he said. Let's go back and look. In his worn jacket with the frayed sleeve ends, he looked like a war veteran about to ask for change for the subway. You've ruined it. Don't say that. Listen, I can't help myself sometimes. I don't know what's wrong with me. I do, she said. You didn't have enough fun as a kid. (laughs) He pulled her arm, but she wouldn't budge. She watched steam rise from a manhole cover and felt in her chest the rumbling of a passing bus. She was keenly aware of the limits of the physical world. She wanted to be in one of those scenes in the windows, frozen in time, in the faultless harmony of parts, working in concert, fulfilling the plan of a guiding, designing hand. It would be lovely not to have to make every decision in life, to be part of a spectacle brought out once a year for the safest of seasons and put to work amusing people who stared back in mute appreciation. The real world was so messy, the light imperfect, the paint chipped, the happiness only partial. One of these years, she said, we will come here and you will enjoy it and not make me feel miserable about it. I dream of that. Let's let that be this year, he said. Let's go back and look at those windows. Please, honey, let me make it up to you. It's too late, she said. It's never too late, he said. Don't say that. She hadn't been looking at him. Now she stopped to. Streams of people flowed past in either direction, rushing toward obscure destinations. This was her life right here, petty as it seemed at the moment, and this was the man she'd chosen to spend it with. He was holding his hat in his hand as if he'd taken it off for the purpose of beseeching her, and she saw that he would always have flaws, that he would always be a little too intense in his objections, a little too unbending when it came to the decadence of the world. She thought, we can't all wear a hair shirt all the time. But there he was, trying to pull her back to the scene he despised, and she saw that he couldn't live in a way other than the one he thought was right, and when he saw what the right thing was, like now, he cared about it as if it were the only thing that mattered. Everyone else around seemed as insubstantial as the air they moved through, the shopping bags they carried, the only things anchoring them to the ground. Did I tell you I love what you did with your hair, he said, and she let herself be mollified because she'd thought he hadn't noticed. She took his hand. They retraced their steps, the street about them thrumming with life. She saw that there was something perfect about the imperfection of her husband, her mortal living husband with his excessive vigilance about the effects of capitalism and his unmistakable pair of bowed legs that she watched carry him forward. She kept her eyes on his shoes hitting the pavement and let him guide her wherever he was going. Thank you. So as I said, what I was excited to get to was the Q&A because this is, this is the part that I think is fun, the conversation. If anybody has questions I can answer or things you'd like me to talk about, I'd love to, yeah. Well, I understand that this was a long project, and so I wonder how, how, did, you, how did you stay with it and stay fresh and stay engaged? Uh, how did I stay with it? Um, well idiocy on one level uh bullheadedness and piggishness i guess uh pig-headedness i how did i stay with it um i just kept working at it i had no publication record i had no agent i had um no time uh i was always tired i spent a few years in a state of permanent dysfunctional sleep deprivation uh, I didn't have the assurance of, uh, you know, the confirmation of my labors at all. I didn't have ratification of them via an agent or any publications. So I was sort of insane. Uh, and most of the time, I was sure I wasn't writing anything worth a damn. It wasn't like I was sitting there thinking, "Wow, this is just awesome, and I can't wait to release this upon the world, the unsuspecting world." <laughs> it was more like, "I hope this doesn't totally suck." And I'm not going to show it to anyone Because I know they're going to tell me how much it sucks So I'm going to be my only reader for years and years Uh, And then I just stopped And uh, I got to the point I guess because I'd been working on it so long Where I didn't really think it was so bad anymore And then it started to get okay And then it started to get good And then I could feel that it was a good book Without feeling like it was uh, You know I was lying to myself or, Or feeling immodest Because I had really stared in the face of how bad it was For a really long time uh, and that was important. Yeah. That's only a partial answer. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Are you writing another book right now? And if you are, is the in a different? Place? I was writing another book. I put it aside because there's no time right now. I'm in the middle of a lot of publicity. Um, the process is different because I can't bring these other characters that came fully to life into this book, and I'm really pissed off about that. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I have to reinvent the entire world. What happens? I think, you know, in partial answer to your question, how did I keep going? It's, it's really enervating and tiring and, and, and kind of uh, terrifying. You're, you're so scared that it's not working for years. And then something happens where these characters sort of come to life. And then they they feed you a bit. And you go to them and look to spend time with them and are excited to spend time with them. Because they're doing things that you're not entirely jerry-rigging and controlling, and they're kind of dictating their own actions for you know mo- for the most part. And you listen to them. You try to divest yourself of this notion that you're the controlling master of all this stuff, and let them let them tell some of the story. Now I have to figure out who these people are, and uh, you know both at the level of fact, biographical fact, and all that, and also figure out what they're motivated by and all this stuff. It's very hard, but I don't. I I feel like you acquire. Craft skills uh, That stay with you Even if you don't Know how to write The next one I remember Alice McDermott Said to me once At grad school uh, Writing a book Doesn't prepare you To write another one And that was I remember being Like struck by the uh, the, the really dark Truth in that uh, And I feel it now But one thing you You know you, you may you've figured out a way to write like less uh, you know embarrassing dialogue you know you, you, you do get the stuff that happens over time where you become a better writer and you import those, those skills to the next book Well, I didn't write during the day at all. I wrote in the wee hours. Um, uh, this yeah, in our culture, we love to. Uh, those who rise early uh, are 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 virtuous. Uh, those who stay up late are vampires. Uh, you know, there's you feel like a like a skulking, immoral uh, embarrassment when you're up late. But I, you know. I would grade my papers. Uh, I could, you know, teaching and writing are both... They're similar in the way that they don't ever leave you alone. They sort of hound you. you. You have these stack of papers. You're never free from them. I couldn't write with a clear head unless the papers were graded, so I would often just start writing at midnight uh, and then write till 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning and fall into bed and wake up to go teach. I had taught at high school, so my first bell was 817. Totally, uh, you know, sadistic. But, yeah, at night, late at night, and... Um, you had, the other question was actually really good. What was the other one? Oh, I I hand wrote this book, um, and I wrote it from largely from start to finish. Um, I would I would type, you know, I would write in these seventy page notebooks and let them pile up, and then spend a month typing. And then that was a mode. Uh, first of all, i wrote by hand because it's a it's it forces forward momentum. It's really hard to edit as you write by hand. Yeah. And if you're frustrated by not finishing a draft, it's the best thing to do because you really can't stop and get rid of all those words. And two things happen. You you get moving and you also, there's stuff that you get rid of in the white heat of composition that you think is just miserable. And you look at it later and you think, that wasn't so terrible. And actually there's a nugget in that, that had I just deleted it, it would have disappeared into the ether. Uh, and that's, you know, uh, that actually writing by hand, when you have a book that you're looking at, you're thinking, this is the book I'm writing. Look at these notebooks piling up. I'm actually writing a book. When you're typing your book, it's this very spectral enterprise. <laughs> you know, I have like 400 files. Is this really a book? It's not a book. Uh, but when you're writing, you get that feeling. And, so, and the process of entering those, the handwritten pages is a form of editing because, you know, you're, you have all these pages to... You don't want to type all these words. If you can get rid of some of them... <laughs> You will, so you're paring it down. You know, it's very useful. Uh, yes. What uh, the you to write this book? A couple things. I, I think, you know, autobiographical impulses that drove me to it. Uh, my mother, my father, myself, certainly. Um, but the book really took off when it stopped being, when it started become a novel. Um, when you're writing in an autobiographical mode or even a semi-autobiographical mode, and you're wondering if people are going to assume certain characters or certain people, you try to protect everybody, you make everybody's motives pristine. If there's anybody that even looks like you at all, you start to make that person a living saint. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I started, when I, when I was actually writing a novel, when it just became a novel, uh, uh, I began to delight in kind of um, putting this character, Connell, through the ringer and making him make decisions I wouldn't have made and... You know, have motivations I wouldn't have had and just give up the fear and once you give up the fear then you actually the character comes to life as a person and you can actually see it as a character because you have made the effort to make it a character and you're not worried about that stuff anymore but why I want to write this material Uh, this woman I mean certainly my mother uh, inspired this woman but I think as a kid looking at my mother's colleagues and uh, people who my mother didn't know but remembering when I was a kid looking at this generation of women and thinking even as a kid I thought this these women are remaking the world they're changing the civilization, they have uh, their positions of power in greater numbers than they ever had before, they're still managing to run homes because, you know, husbands aren't really that far along (laughs) in helping out, and so uh, if you can write about a woman in that period of time and tell a bit of the story of America as it changed toward more of what we know now, it would be a useful story to tell, so... Um, I didn't set out to write uh, from a female protagonist's perspective. Uh, It certainly wouldn't have been the first thing I would think because it's a degree of difficulty that's a little intimidating, but I tried to write it from other characters' perspective, the sons, even the fathers. I made the deliberate decision at some point to leave him out on purpose entirely. We'd never get his perspective because I thought if I did that, I could recreate for the reader some of the experience of the inscrutability of this consciousness from the outside, I don't want to say what he gets, but something happens to this man and the unknowability of his thoughts is really important. So I wanted to leave him out. Anybody else? Yeah. Any issues as a teacher turning off the analytical part of your mind in order to engage with the imaginative? That's a great question. My God. Uh, Yeah, for a long time and then no. Yeah. I mean, yes, definitely. It was, I was hamstrung by self-consciousness and, you know, the thing that's, that kills a book is this notion that you have this sort of, uh, architectural structure for ideas and, uh, everything is going to be built on that, the skeleton of that. The book became a real book when I just started getting into writing scenes and, uh, what's amazing about that is that you you have these ideas in the back of the mind they become kind of unconscious they get driven underground a little bit and they come out in the scenes it's not like you forget that you had intentions beyond the, you know the really immediate domestic sphere they find a way out they push out there's a pressure that they need to be released through some valve and they come out in the scenes and you end up writing about ideas even though you're not explicitly trying to in that scene so yeah you have to shut the analytical part off I think and you have to have faith that the characters in the story will, will carry the day Oh, boy. There are three and a half as of this week. Um, the last two years I was writing the book, uh, we were living in a one-bedroom apartment, the four of us. God, it's so Dickensian when I think about it. I don't even like to... Uh, <laughs> sounds like I'm exaggerating it, but no, it was pretty tough. Uh, my wife was a hero. She took on a, a huge burden of childcare. Um, we decided... Uh, this is a good story, I mean, uh, for writers. Uh, I was... Yeah, I was an adjunct teacher after my MFA and I had no money, no health insurance. So I took a job as a high school teacher. And uh I loved teaching high school. I loved the teaching itself. The teaching uh high school comes with it all this time that you spend grading papers. It's so overwhelming and so tiring. Um But there was that. I was teaching and uh, you know, we got uh to the point my wife and I where we saw that I would need a chunk of time to finish this thing and if I didn't take it at that moment it might really never come we, we I took a year off well I took a year a leave of absence and we timed it to when the kids were actually born which is the craziest thing in the world <laughs> uh, but the thinking was and my wife is very smart in thinking this way uh, they're going to be easier this year than they will next year and any year after that and that was a genius insight that I would never have had um and she was right. It was still incredibly hard, but uh, we, took, we took this risk. I took a year off. We had no income. We had saved really diligently for a couple of years and then a run up to that. And we lived off this savings and her income and tried to live cheaply. And at the end of that time, it wasn't done. And that was one of the hardest periods of my life because I wanted so desperately to be done. I was going back to teaching. I knew what that meant in terms of time. And uh, that year was the hardest year of my life because... I was stealing the time from my wife, who I had basically promised that I'd be done by this point. And uh, the kids were harder now. Uh, and I never slept that year. But the pressure, it was like you know, turning the coal into a diamond in a way. You, you put so much pressure on something, and if you don't give up, it might get better. Uh, and I just got through to the end. I finished on February 28th. I sent it to agents March 1st. My agent read it in two days. Over the weekend, we met, and I met with him, and we signed up uh, to to work together, and he sold it a month later. So it was a hell of a story, I think. Uh, Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a self-help group right now. I, too, I, too, am a high school English teacher. That's you, Dan. No, no. I, think about, um, I think about the intimacy, with yeah. my students yeah. read. Did you have students in mind ever when you read in terms of, you know, because there are people that read casually, but there's the, the work that kids put into your books, and you probably were more conscious of the reader as a as a somebody who would be producing a paper you'd have to slug through right? you mean uh, you're saying at the level of reading their papers or like, I'm just saying did you did you ever think about like somebody who would be studying oh boy N- no god I never I just wanted to finish <laughs> no I I just wanted to finish the damn thing I w- having a reader is exciting uh <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I don't. I'm not being glib. Just the, the the oh boy, the thrill of finishing, forgetting, just getting an agent or getting it published was so exciting. And part of that was that I held it for a really long time. So I, I knew it was bad for years and years. I knew it wasn't ready, you know. But anyway, I uh, I wasn't thinking about readers. I'll tell you how the kid, the students helped me. Um, I taught high school boys, only boys, and that's a tough crowd. <laughs> These are actually smart kids who didn't want to read a damn thing. Uh, so they they take. Uh, if you have any kind of high modernist impulses, or you know you're, you know you're sort of you love Virginia Woolf's The Waves, for instance. Uh, you're you know you have a tendency to want to write toward some kind of cons- conscious and constant flowering of a uh, of voice in the sentence and, and, a, and a kind of curly cued filigreed prose, if that, is, if that appeals to you, right? And it appeals to me like it would appeal to really any sensitive reader. You start thinking about these kids, these high school kids, and you think about how they would react to that crap. <laughs> and you, you, start, you start thinking, well, Chekhov was a genius too, you know? Uh, and he didn't have to write like this, so maybe I will re- remember that and respect that mode. <laughs> Embarrassment about those kids reading it was actually a huge huge impulse toward a certain kind of writing. Yeah. Uh, so your story made me curious about your process, because you described yourself as finishing on February 28th, but then it also sounds like you maybe had earlier complete drafts. So I'm just... No, I think I had a... I came to a final draft that day. I wrote... I, I did write it pretty straight through. I didn't... I had an ending in mind half a decade before, and I just sort of dumbly plotted toward it. Uh... Yeah. It sounds so totally underwhelming, but yes. No, I did not have a finished I did not have a finished draft. I did not. No. No. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I considered it finished. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean no, he had I, actually everybody told me to add my agent and then my editor after she bought it. Uh I thought it was like Ahab at the wheel, basically. We sent out a 751-page manuscript in Word, and my, agent, uh, my editor asked me to add. Um, don't worry about length, please. If people talk about long books, and you know, don't write a long book. If it's a book that people want to get, they'll get it. I mean, it's, it, there's no reason to get self-conscious about that in a way that's self-defeating. Um, I tried to make it as short as I possibly could. I wrote the shortest book I could. <laughs> uh, yes.
0: Like the
2: psychological knowing of that is—is that from your own background, or was Hmm. it a scene that happened in your life? I guess I guess I have to no that no no it's funny uh you know whatever autobiographical roots there are in this book I when I think about it almost none of the plot events happened in the way that they are in the book anyway and certainly that wasn't a scene I saw but um I guess it's you know I I was just watching and listening for years. On the sidelines, yeah. Well, thank you, but you know, I think we all have the capacity to watch other people and find them fascinating. I think that's what it is, really. Um, yeah. I, I want to push that question a little bit further because I was also really moved by that scene, and not that your answer was. not <laughs> it, I like the pushback, actually, And I will deflect it immediately if it's positive. <laughs> Being Irish, yes. I guess it's just, you know, that idea of, I think as writers what
1: we struggle with a lot, because for the most part, we're, we are watchers, and we're listeners, and we're in love with the world, but we're also, we become cynical, and I don't want to say whatever mm.
0: in that sense, but because we're watchers and listeners, mm. and I felt like that scene really
2: captured a lot of that that rub. Okay. Mm. Well, look, it, it takes two in that scene. I mean, I, uh, Ed could have been intransigent enough to just stand there and say, this is crazy, absurd behavior and I'm not moving. Um, it's a it's a duet, you know. Uh, maybe being married and being in a relationship, you know, uh, it helps. I don't know if I could have written that scene when I was younger. I... I feel like we put so much pressure on people to be young writers and this wunderkind model is so potent and the obsession with being 25 and being done with your book. Writing is not chess or mathematics. It's a field in which you can actually succeed at a later age and the benefit of not being 25 is that well, we all know that the cerebral cortex is not fully formed until 25, you're not really, you're not actually fully a person yet. Um, Why we would go to those people for any wisdom at all is sort of shocking um, but yeah, well, I mean, the the incursions of age and time and the sort of like the 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 ruin that time does to the body is balanced by a little bit of wisdom and perspective. You know, uh, that's that's the compensation for it. I think. Oh, this is great, you guys! I'm gonna start backing up. I mean, <laughs> yes. Oh, boy, that's a great question. Hmm. If you look at your first drafts, your first impulses in any scene, in any page, in any sentence, and you prosecute it as if it were a final work, you're doing yourself a terrible unkindness. Uh, you 're actually you 're being intellectually dishonest as well because other people aren 't writing like that, other people are working hard at revising things. I felt really bad about my work for a really long time and i and I think the reason uh that I did was because it wasn 't mature work and if you ask your work to be mature before it 's mature uh you 're in a state of cognitive dissonance in a way. I learned that work gets better over time uh not all work, and and sometimes you can work at something, and it's not good. But you know, there's a kind of trajectory that is really useful to the working writer because you do actually see improvements. Uh, I learned also, as I tried to say in the, the New York Times uh, interview that I did, um, you uh, if you if you duck the really vital material in any scene, the scene dies. You have to, you have to. I've learned that I had to uh, try not to blink and try. I would, I would, in my apprenticeship, I would write up to moments and just kind of write away from them, you know, and I would like write toward the climactic moment in the scene or the moment of emotional uh, potency or revelation and then just duck it. And then I just stuck in it. I stopped ducking and I just wrote through that stuff. I also learned that um, you can write your way through a scene that isn't working and then it starts working. And then the great thing about writing is that it's not actually acting. People don't have to see the bad stuff. <laughs> you know, the amazing thing about writing is that the document at the end is all that matters. So you have this horse shit that nobody has to see. And it's, it's, the, it's the best part of writing, I think. Uh, so you can write, you know, you can write 15 pages of dreck. And then there are these two pages that work at the tail end of that th- four hours. And then that's the only pages that have to exist in the book. It's kind of incredible, actually, when you think about it. It's like cheating. Yeah? Um, I don't want to push back or anything. I'd like to draw you in more. Okay. In that particular comment, because uh, I'm hearing you talk about a lot of your professional experience. Yeah. What about it on a personal level? Um, You seem to get emotional talking about your wife and the sacrifice that she made. How has this made you maybe a better person or more self-aware
0: about who you
2: are as a person? Well, let me speak to that for one second. The, uh, my wife and feeling, you know, uh, maybe improving as a person. Um, when I was given that time, I was aware of the fact that it was a mutual uh, effort and I didn't waste it because of that. And uh, I worked my butt off because of that. Uh, had I been younger, I might have been more selfish about the way I used my time. I might have wasted more of it. I might have done whatever I wanted with that time. Uh, There wasn't a five-minute period during that time when I wasn't working that I didn't feel bad about it, if that makes any sense. And that was very productive. Guilt can sometimes be really, really useful. (laughs) Um, But uh, in terms of, uh, like, I guess, you know, you write a book and you learn some things over the course of writing it. You actually feel like you know people better. You might know yourself better. I don't think it's possible to write a book without... You know, everyone lately has been saying how empathy and reading are so interrelated... I think it's true for writing as well you, you you spend enough time you're actually reading this book that you're writing effectively if you think of it that way you, you can't help but be in a mode where you're trying to understand being alive more um, how could it be possible that you could come out the back end of that thing and not know a tiny bit more even if what you're knowing is that you really don't know a lot you know you still know something and knowing that uh, so yeah oh boy uh, it's uh, it 's another family drama with uh, an emo- a, you know a kind of a character based situation just like that i 'm not writing the waves if anyone 's wondering um, if you haven 't read the waves, you have to read it it 's amazing uh, but it's just it 's like reading Juna Barnes's Nightwood or something like that. You just have to you know go into a fever dream reading these books and not expect to understand anything i 'm um, writing another family drama a different kind of family entirely um, different situation. Yeah, uh, what will this... I hope this book is the... You know, you always... Yeah, I hope this book is the prelude to the next one, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, I hope the next one is the one people remember. Yeah. Did you worry when you sent your... about how it would be received in the community that you were writing about? Were oh, it your, yeah. Your it's, it's a great question. I, no, I'll tell you why, no. Yeah, my mother is amazing. Uh, she... Could, did I worry about the community I was writing about uh, in the... Sen- did I, was, I, was, I Tom, was I worried I was Tom Wolfe? Would I be driven out of... Would I be driven out of Asheville, North Carolina? <laughs> never allowed to return. Uh, I was not. I'll tell you why. Because um, my mother... First of all, whatever uh, overlaps there are with my mother and this character, uh, there was enough... Divergence that I was comfortable knowing that she would know it wasn't her, and also, you know, the Irish are not—they uh, uh, don't overpraise. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I didn't—I didn't—I didn't have to labor under an excess of praise as a youngster. <laughs> but I knew, because of the way the Irish are, that if I had done something to redeem my existence on the planet like write a decent book, that my mother would be able to take pride in that, a kind of family pride in that. And so I knew that that would, if it was a good book, that it would redound to her credit. Maybe I hadn't become a priest or a politician, <laughs> but it was, it was okay. It was a decent effort. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> yeah, yes. Yes. More or less, yeah. I went back and rewrote the beginning, but yes, yeah. My yeah. Did your beginning stay the same? No, I completely rewrote it many, many times. In fact, the prologue, I probably had wrote 120 versions of that stupid first page. Um, but yeah, the whole first 60 or so pages, I rewrote several times after I wrote them the first time. Uh, thank you for bringing up all those terrible memories. <laughs> yes. I did not. I I actually... Well, I I have a writer center, certainly. I write at Paragraph, which is a workspace for writers in Manhattan um, on 14th Street between 5th and 6th. My wife runs that business. I met her there. I was a member there. It's like the hair club for men. I'm also a client. Uh, (laughs) But no, I did not have a group. Uh, Again, I said this earlier in a different form. Why would I need a group? I knew how bad it was, you know? I mean... (laughs) Just it's like just sort of setting yourself up for a flagellation to go to people. You, maybe you have to know what's. I mean, it, it, that's actually where teaching helped because I had this kind of honed critical consciousness, seeing all this miserably bad work all the time. You know, in my students, <laughs> smart kids who didn't work at all. Like that's the thing, right? Uh, so I could, I could. My gift as a writer was to see what wasn't working, and that's incredibly useful because it helps you know you're not going down a peninsula uh, that you know will be a kind of death walk if you see that it's not working. It's a known known, right? Uh, so, it, and, and it, it, so that when you think something is working, you're like, "Wow, this might actually be working, because I see how shitty this other stuff is. Um, so no, I did not have a group at all. no. But not because I sort of hubristically thought I didn't need one. I, I, I knew what they would be telling me already. Well, thank you guys very much for your time.)
0: Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.